Thank you so much, Zoe, for taking the time and, and putting up with my technical difficulties today. They're my issues, not yours. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, can you tell me about where you grew up and, and what you ate? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in uh, more than one place, really, uh, because, you know, I'm from southeast London, but I'm a third culture kid. So my mum's Irish and my dad's Ghanaian. And so I'm, I'm brought up English in southeast London, but I spent a couple of years as a baby into my toddler times in Ghana. So I would have been eating fufu and like Ghanaian baby food, basically. Lots of mpoto mpoto, pounded yam, porridge, things like that. But I also spent a huge part of my childhood growing up in Ireland. So, yeah. So, like, basically every, every available summer, like, every, all the school breaks, half terms, Easter, summer holidays, up until I was probably... I think I started losing interest when I was about 14, but I think I carried on doing the family holidays until I was about 15. And when I say family, I mean, that was just me, my mom and my sister. It was a very small nuclear family. Um, and yeah, I was in Ghana without my parents, actually. On my, yeah, so living with my grandmother and there was some woman looking after me. Um, and and it, yeah, but the majority of my childhood, I guess, was growing up in Southeast London. Yeah. Right. And then how did you end up uh, working in food? Um, yeah, really good question. There's not an easy <laughs> answer to that either, no. I'm afraid. But, um, you know, I like to think of it as kind of, on one sense, it's like this happy serendipitous accident. But actually, increasingly, I've come to believe that the universe funneled me down a certain path because it really never felt like any of it was, you know, I didn't think I was destined to be a cook of any description it was really not on my radar but it's certainly the space in where like I found my power and my voice and stepped into my purpose but um how did that start well I guess it goes I have to go back quite a few paces to childhood and the fact that I am from two different ethnic parents and the fact that I had this close relationship with Ireland and my Irishness growing up and I didn't have that same relationship with my Ghanaian and this-ishness. Yeah. Um, and so food from quite a young age became my access point to Ghana and that sort of inquiry into my heritage and trying to understand what that part of my culture was about. So it started, you know, I started working with food in a way from a very young age. Uh, and then I used to like, cook my friends particular dishes that I love, like peanut butter stew, which has gone on to be signature dish and then um but how my business kind of started was in 2010 um i basically got back from the states I've been, i spent three months traveling around the states on amtrak and um you know any means possible really to see as much of the continent as i could and had an amazing time and i came back broke and i just moved back to, i mean I, i've always lived in hackney wick when i've been back in london well, not always technically, that's another story. But anyway, <laughs> I came back to Hackney Wick and I don't know what you know about Hackney Wick then or now, but um, I guess it was like Brooklyn 20 years ago where it was kind of very affordable living, cheap warehouse, big spaces. So the dominant kind of tenant then was, was we were artists, creatives, writers, photographers, right? Huge studios, <sighs> workspaces. But there was nothing else here. There's no bars, no restaurants, no cafes or anything like that. But, um, you know, good times <laughs> before it was gentrified. Anyway, so Hackney Wick um, then used to have a festival, an arts festival called Hackney Wicked. And so all of those studios would get opened over the course of that weekend. And so during this weekend, I was looking at this bleak industrial landscape of Hackney Wick suddenly fill up with like all these people from all over London. Um, I thought, well, there's an opportunity to make some pocket money here because they're going to be hungry. They're like roaming around. So basically, I decided to make a makeshift kind of food store outside my front door because my actual home, the, where, like the warehouse we live in, was being used as a video gallery. So I couldn't be in it and I didn't have anything to do. So I thought, well, let me cook some food and see if I can sell it. And my friend made a big sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew, obviously only famous for me and to them. But as a marketing ploy, it kind of worked. And the smell... You know, it's a big smell. It's like a bold, full flavor, piquant, spicy, sweet, um, delicious smell. So it drew people. 
And so outside my front door, I, you know, I've kept selling out of the stuff basically. And it started some interesting conversations around why people had never heard of Ghanaian food, why people had never heard, a lot of people didn't even know where Ghana was, you know, on the map. So it did, it, you know, I think that's the, the moment where something subconsciously ticked in my brain. Like, well, there's a problem to solve here, but I'm not the problem, like, I'm not going to be the problem solver. Do you know what I mean? It was, still wasn't on my radar. Um, and people wanted me to do it again, but I was like, oh, probably not. Anyway, fast forward a year and uh, I, I'd started my MA at Goldsmiths and that same weekend, um, or I was just about to start my MA at Goldsmiths, sorry. So that same weekend, we turned the flat into a restaurant. So instead of an open studio, we made it into a restaurant because we had so much fun the year before, right? And I called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Actually, I called it Ghana Kitchen. It didn't have my name on it yet. <laughs> And I turned it into, so we made loads of tables and chairs. I still live in this space now, actually, as I'm sitting in here. And we um, made lots of tables and chairs. I went, basically ransacked loads of charity shops, got all of like secondhand cutlery and plates and went to Ridley Road Market, got lots of African fabric. I created a Spotify playlist. And for all intents and purposes, people, it looked like a restaurant. So people thought they were in a restaurant and people were trying to, and it was ram, 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 thank you, ma'am. So busy, like so, I cannot tell you how extraordinarily busy it was uh, over the course of four days. And people were trying to book, you know, for next week and the week after and so on. And I had to be like, I'm really sorry, this is actually in my living room. You're actually standing in my office. It's like, this isn't how this normally looks. It's like a fun thing but I'll take your email address and if I do it again I'll let you know and that's basically how that started and because I enjoyed it so much um I kept I, I kind of started doing it every few months and then it became monthly um but it's still a hobby right it wasn't a business and then when I started the MA I thought oh cool I can do this and not have to work for anybody else and all you know I can just write and read and have all the fun um, and cook when I feel like it and have these amazing parties because that's what they were really it's like these huge dinner parties of like 60 people twice a night like we did used to do 60 covers twice a night um but it was like just so much fun and it I was still kind of hesitant to be honest because I really was focused on writing and wanting to be a writer and I tried to move to Berlin I mean I did move to Berlin because I found my bohemian paradise there and <laughs> You know, I was going to be this cigarette smoking, whiskey drinking, late night, you know, bohemian person <laughs> breathing in uh, Berlin culture and society and then putting my spin on it. Uh, but I also took a kitchen residency while I was there to earn some money. And then at the same time, and, and in doing that in Berlin, like the first event I did in Berlin went into their version of Time Out straight away. And after that, I had like my inbox full of people in Berlin trying to book for the next one. So that gave me a reason to keep going back to Berlin before I moved. Then I eventually moved there. But, you know, it, it, there was this zeitgeist moment, I think, where, you know, cookery shows were taking off. Jamie Oliver's Naked Chef had done some interesting perspective changing around what TV cooking looked like you know, foodie became like the new language for people that love food. And there was this big gap, right, about what African cuisine was and nobody was really stepping into that gap. Uh, and not to say that there wasn't African restaurants all over London, because there certainly were, but they certainly weren't doing what I was doing, which was having a modern perspective, modern take on it, and also making an environment for people from all parts of society to feel comfortable in having that experience. So. There's a bit of zeitgeist. Anyway, the reason I came back from Berlin was because, you know, I just kept getting so many catering jobs in London. I ended up coming back to London once every two weeks. So I thought, well, this is silly. <laughs> so I decided to move back to London. And when I realised, you know, so it started taking off in blogs and then press. I was in German press. I was in British press. Uh, I got asked to go to do this amazing project in Moscow, like this uh, long table dining in a public park. And it was fucking cool as fuck. And... Uh, and so I was like, okay, there's something here. What is it? Like, why do people enjoy this so much? What, what, is, what is it, the problem that I'm solving kind of thing? And I decided that the reason, well, there's lots of reasons, but I just, I decided that, okay, so what you need to do is educate people about what this food is. Um, and then that became the mission statement for Zoe's Ghana Kitchen to bring African food to the masses and start an African food revolution. And that's pretty much what I've been spent the last 10 years doing. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's a long answer, but that's how it is. 
No, and uh, it's so interesting because I do feel like the universe, you know, you can have all these intentions and put all the work toward doing one thing that you think you want to do that you think you're supposed to do. And then the world will be like, absolutely not. No, you're doing no, no. this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had the rug from under me so many times, but yeah. And ironically, I mean, interestingly, I don't even think that, you know, everything that's happened so far in the last 10 years still isn't even, I think I'm only just now actually getting to the point of what the purpose was of all of that experience. And that's exciting. Um, So, yeah. No, excellent. Um, And in the introduction to your book, Zoe's Gone a Kitchen, you write, African cuisine has been surprisingly marginalized. And that reminded me of, I'm sure you know her work, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. She wrote in High on the Hog, which is about African cuisine in in the States, um, the same thing, basically. And, you know, why do you think that's the case? And have you seen that change at all since your book came out? I mean, in the States, for whatever reason, right now, Nigerian food is having kind of a moment, at least in the media, because, you know, nothing can have a moment in real life right now. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so is, do you feel that that's changed at all? Or, or if it has, you know, maybe morphed slightly? Yes. I mean, I wish when I'd wrote that I hadn't written surprisingly, because it's not surprisingly right. at all. I think I was polite. Um, and I was a bit more polite in 2015 when I was writing that book than I am now for sure. But um, it's not surprising actually for lots of reasons. And the big reason is because we understand that the food world is a white gaze all over every single aspect of it, right? So, um, but let's take some responsibility where we need to actually, and we do. And I think that part of the, cons- the reasons that um, we can raise our hands up for on that front are the fact that you know, within our communities. And even as I say this, there is still the lens of white supremacy behind what I'm about to say. But, you know, 99.9%, if not 100% of African mothers and fathers want you to do a hard academic or hard science degree, right? Because their belief is it, 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 the world is going to be hard enough for you anyway. You need to have the best qualifications behind you so that people can't say no to you, right? So... So we don't think of, in those cultures, we don't think of hospitality and catering as desirable careers historically for good reasons. And also from a gastronomy, like a historical gastronomy perspective, you know, those cultures in West Africa haven't had that leisurely headspace that the French and the Italians have had for hundreds of years to develop their cuisine because we've actually been oppressed for hundreds of years and been trying to get our land back or our freedom back or whatever, right? So food was very much sustenance and a means to an end and obviously it has we know that culturally speaking food is very important in terms of celebration and in family get-togethers and things like that but outside the context of uh, nostalgia sustenance familiarity and togetherness and connection there isn't a career associated to any of that historically so they're just not um careers that we think you we might have used to think to go into. And add on top of that, the huge lack of representation of black faces in food media full stop. Um, I mean, I can't speak, I mean, I can speak a little bit to the American, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm gonna speak to the UK perspective. Um, you know, growing up, the black faces in food I saw on TV, and I mean, no disrespect to these people, were, it was just Ainsley Harriet, right? I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah. Um, he's a guy of West, I think Caribbean, I don't want to pick which island or where, but Caribbean influence, right? But he wasn't cooking Caribbean food. He was hosting this fun, throwaway, almost, you know, it was called Ready Steady Cook or something like that in its first iteration. And it's like, oh, I've got a pepper and an onion. What can I make? <laughs> um, and he was a fun, nice, charming character, right? Easy on the eye for the white gaze, for sure. And then you had um, uh, uh, Rusty Lee, who similarly, I think, was from a Caribbean background, but cooking in, in stereotype of, you know, ha, 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 I'm a big, gay, boisterous, fun, uh, unintimidating black woman. Let me guide you through this thing that's got nothing to do with my heritage or culture, essentially. Right. And then that was kind of the landscape, apart from maybe you saw Mother Jeffrey occasionally or something like that. And certainly nobody would you know, from the continent of Africa was just absolutely absent in terms of representation. 
So you don't have, if you know, you can't be what you, you can't see, right? So you don't have any role models in that space to think, oh, that person's doing it, so I can do it. Um, and so, you know, you put all of those things together and, and you've got, a, there's roadblocks in the way, right? But then, um, and then there's the inherent problem of having an all white media and whether or not they're interested, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm always going on about how important it is to own story and narrative and be in charge of it. Because, you know, if, if I wasn't the person I was with the experience I have and my intersectionality and uh, all the tools that I'd equipped myself with, because I came into food in my thirties, like I wasn't some spring chicken, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I had my armor for the world already. <laughs> um, and I had my intention. So, you know, for a lot of young people, I think that it could have gone really wrong really quickly. And uh, just because I've got a strong voice and a strong intention, and I have this armor that I've built up through various other things over the years, I was able to be really quite forceful in about how I wanted my cuisine to be represented. And even with that strength of mind and voice, you know, I'm still, I still get um, misintroduced on panels and I still get miss. You know, my cuisine, my style of cooking or the food I cook still gets miscalled or misnamed or mislabeled. There's constantly this desire to put me in an authentic bracket or traditional bracket, which is absolute bullshit. I just spent an hour on the phone in another interview talking about that. (laughs) But, you know, so there's a lot, there's like layers and layers and layers of reasons why. But has that changed? Um, Absolutely, yes. Of course it has, uh, dramatically. Um, and, you know, so when my book come out, came out, Lope Arai's book also came out at the same time, Abiscus, um, you know, how that book came out and the way they went about publishing that, I'm not 100% behind because basically what they decided was, oh, Zoe, you know, I'm trying, yeah. this isn't about my ego. Right. But it's, oh, you know, Zoe's gone the kitchen's doing really well. So there must be like some kind of market for African food, right? So let's like, let's do a competition to find a black cook. Because we're like too lazy, we're just too lazy to actually do a real investigation of who's actually cooking this stuff. You know, you know what I mean? So it's this kind of like this tokenistic adding into the equation another cookbook. And I don't say that to take anything away from Lope because I'm with friends. I like her a lot, and you know, she was a great food blogger before that book came out. And the book's a lovely book, right? But I don't think that she had the armor she needed to make that book the success it needed to be and to have a strong enough voice over how the marketing and publicity of that book happened. And incidentally, another racist thing that happened was they put those books out intentionally at the same time. So delayed my release by a year so that it would come out at the same time as her release, which meant that they then split our audience. And, you know, the reason I say that that's, part of systemic racism is because they're not valuing, they're not giving appropriate value to the work and to the fact that we're already competing in a space that is hugely competitive with niche cuisines and trying to give it a, you know, a a voice, a place and a platform. And if you split our market, you split our voice and you split our earning potentials and blah, blah, and so on. So so I thought that was extremely cynical, cynical and untrustworthy move by you know the media um but yeah so you know and of course we had the ground nut cookbook very just before those two books come out actually so there was that moment around west african cooking but they would like to keep that as a moment right so they're not going to encourage us to keep producing books and i even had a meeting in which um you know my publisher said to me it's probably not even a year after it was released they were like oh you know the sales haven't been what we wanted so um we're not going to do a reprint. And I said, oh, well, will you do like a paperback or something? And she was like, no. And then I said, oh, okay, well, I'm interested in doing like an Afro-vegan, da, 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 da. And she was like, oh, I think you've missed that boat. Missed that boat in 2018. Like, what the actual fuck are you talking about? <laughs> then, um, and now, and so I've been trying to get my rights back to my book, right? Which they haven't been willing to give me. Or, or they've, well, let's say there's been a lot of excuses like this person's on maternity this person's on maternity this person's not in the office right and then the whole blm movement blows up and then suddenly i've got my extra three thousand followers overnight and everyone's like buying black and then suddenly the publisher wants to reprint my book and it's like oh you son of a bitch um but anyway in the meantime sorry we have lots of new african food businesses um 
some of which have been kind enough to reference me as an inspiration for what they've done, right? So you've got, you, we had Jollof Box, we have Nims Din with her Cham Cham from Sierra Leone, we have um, Little Baobab, who's got a cookbook coming out soon. Uh, Chukus in London have just opened a restaurant in North London in Tottenham. They do like an Nigerian tapas. We have a Coco, which is fine dining opening in October, which has been delayed from April this year. We have Stork in Mayfair. Um, obviously we have a Koi, but they want to distance themselves for whatever reasons they have from West African, being labeled West African food, but inherently it is. Um, and hundreds, hundreds more street food vendors, uh, supper clubs, uh, private dining, um, food writers, food bloggers, um, you know, so, so we have seen a huge change in, in how at least the cuisine is represented mm -hmm. in terms of the number of people representing it. It's still got a lot, we still have a long way to go in terms of how it's represented in the media, in both uh, in TV, like uh, visually on media, whether it's online or on TV or whatever, but also in print and there's, there's not enough you know, there should be more. We, we still have the problem, basically, if there's only space for one black face at a time. And there's only room for one conversation around African food at a time, even though it's a continent that has 54 countries. Um, so, you know, there's still lots to do, but we have made huge progress. And I have seen that progress translate to the States as, this, you know, as chefs in the States have started. <clears throat> and I think it's really, there's a whole other conversation here around the relationship with... Um, slave history and you know slave culture and the food that is the, the origin story of so much of the food of the south and i think that's a complicated thing to unpick but i think that there's definitely been in the last 10 years a movement of voices whether they're chefs or writers and food who are making the connection between um the african-american food experience and the, the origin point of, of, of all of that and that is leading to great new concepts like um you know kirk cooks people like and obviously you one day's doing great things like she's a great friend of mine as well but uh, and i i mean i could list lots of chefs sadanike kwame blah, blah, blah. there's lots more chefs who have gained traction and profile um around their cuisine and they are majoritively Nigerian and I don't know if that speaks to the fact that especially the East Coast has a huger population of Nigerians than it does Ghanaians um, but yeah I think and maybe that is why it's gaining some traction because there must be a lot of immigrants from those communities there to have the relationship with it in the first place I suppose you know whereas we we have a, a huge community of Nigerian and Ghanaian people in Britain um, probably in equal measure, whereas perhaps maybe in, on the East Coast there's more Nigerians, but, or maybe there's not enough. I mean, Eric um, Ajepong now from Ghana, I mean, I know he's not based in New York, I think, but I mean, he's certainly been a huge profile builder for, for, for Ghana in, in the States. I'm hoping he does all the work that I've done over here so that I can, when I get there, <laughs> I don't have to explain to anybody where Ghana is. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, it's fascinating for me because I'm in Puerto Rico right now. And um, for me, like the in the cuisine here, the African influence is so obvious, you know, and not in a way that it's been sort of translated through the, the food of the American South. Like, because the climate is the same, the food, the ingredients are so much the same. And there that influence is so, so strong. And it's obviously it's combined with Spanish, Spanish influence from from that colonization. But it's interesting, because I feel so distant from whatever is happening in the United States around food right now, because I'm not there. And and so I'm watching this. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Um, how is this happening? Like, and I mean, as you noted, it's like, there's this this push right now where you know people are like oh follow all these black people in food like so buy their books and everything and and it's a bit it i know i've talked a bit about this with another friend whose magazine has seen this kind of like bump from the from this moment and it's it's a complicated thing to deal with it's absolutely and so how i feel like has would did you launch black black book the the kind of conversation series you're doing on instagram as kind of a way of discussing how this moment is is very complicated um 
well, the answer to that is also a little bit, well, it's not complicated, but it's right. actually a bit longer than that. Right. I'll tell you what, the, the Black Book has been in my mind as a thing to, an important thing that needs to happen for a couple of years. And I tell you, when I, because I've, I've worked in New York quite a lot, my, my wife's from New York, right? So I spend quite a lot of time in New York and I've been lucky enough to work there. I've been lucky enough to meet some amazing inspirational voices in food. Um, and when I met, um, when I became part of or saw what black food folks was, honestly, my jaw dropped. I was like, what the actual fuck is this? Like everybody in this room works in F&B and they're black. And there's no like hierarchy in this room, right? We're just all there because we are all black and we are all working in this industry. And it's really easy to have a conversation with anybody in this room. And I was blown, like blown away by that because nothing like that existed in the UK. And ever since that, I've been like, how do I make that happen? Like, how do I make that happen here, right? But I was still trying to run my other businesses in this chaotic, horrible, messy way. So it's like, this wasn't a priority then. But when I just got back from New York recently in February, I was like, right, because I was having this big, uh, as a result of COVID, as a result of lots of personal development and growth I've been doing actually and like shifting my perspectives on vision and purpose and stuff. I was thinking, oh shit. Dropped <laughs> over my ice latte. No, um, I'm sorry. Fine. Um, so really like the black book is born out of that experience of being in America and seeing the power of connectedness between a community. Um, and so back in February, March, I emailed two friends of mine who I know, because I've been having these conversations for years, right? This is the other thing that's very frustrating is I've literally been one of the few voices criticizing publicly or having these conversations with people about inherent systemic racism and why, how and why our voices are controlled and limited and how we're not paid properly and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So at the start of COVID, a lot of things, I, I reached out to these people and said, look, I want to start Black Book. Here's, here's the vision. This is what I want it to be. And we've been working towards that, right? And then the BLM thing happened. And then uh, like in the UK, the wave of the movement, I mean, again. And, um, you know, and obviously then, not obviously, but yes, obviously, suddenly all of these people were wanting me to speak on panels. And I was like, wait, 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 no, you've got this all wrong. You don't get to host this conversation. You don't get to tell me what's important to me or what needs changing because you've got no fucking idea, you know? <laughs> so I just contacted as many people. I just said, we need to talk about this meaningfully. And, and, it, it, and actually it needs to be a global conversation and it needs to have the voices in it who've been having this conversation for years because we need to get past this question of whether or not there's a problem because of course there's a fucking problem. The next part of the question is how deep is it and how do we unpick it and do we bother unpicking it or do we just let them carry on with it and we start our own versions, you know? So, and the food industry is so big, you know, it's bigger than hospitality and, and there's so much to discuss and it, there's so much to unpick. It's like you can't do it in one panel. So that's why the Black Book series um, came, became born, decolonizing the food industry is because I wanted us to take control of the conversation and also not wait for them to have the right conversations and not wait for them to come up with the solutions that would only just suit them. So that's the point of the Black Book series of talks. And they kind of, you know, it's eight weeks at the moment, but I can see it probably extending because there is so much to talk about on so many different topics. And it has attracted, you know, I've been lucky to get some amazing, amazing voices on the panels. And the first one last Sunday was great. Very energetic, um, very, you know, and ultimately very positive because what we also want to do is give people hope that there is, there is space for blackness in F&B and hospitality, whether it's in the existing institutions or not is another question, but you know, everybody should be hopeful in this moment because there is so much for us to look forward to if we've got the right classes on, you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what made you, what the specific topics that you guys are talking about over these eight weeks, how did you decide on what they would be? Um, well, I mean, the honest answer to that is in about 30 seconds. I, I, I just went, I just, I just like, you know, it's like off the top of my head, what are the eight most important things? <laughs> I, I sent it to Anna Sulin 
and uh, Fozia Ismail and I said, guys, can you work up these headline topics a little bit? Like, give me a paragraph as to what this conversation looks like. And that was it. And that's how it started. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. No, I always say this, that the best things start from um, nothing. You know, <laughs> the best things start from just dumping your brain. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's true because, and I've been saying this a lot recently, Lace, because the vision for Black Book is so big, and I don't think I've explained it adequately, so let me just do that for a minute. So Black Book, uh, the vision for Black Book is to be a global representation platform for, for Black and anybody who doesn't identify as white, right? So uh, some people, I don't know why they get hurt by this phrase, non-white, <laughs> <laughs> not white and you're not white that's the end yeah. of it um so i feel okay about not white but whoever mm -hmm. have your wish. um but the point is it's about creating ultimately it's about creating inspiring and empowering people right and giving them the tools to, to represent them in a way that gives them the tools to fulfill their dreams the way that they want those dreams to unfold rather than going down the wrong rabbit hole and seeking the wrong kind of attention in the wrong kind of press. Because the way the system currently works, it has its own kind of modality and its own rhythm. And it's like, okay, publishers like, oh, we've got a cookbook. It has to go into the Times and the Telegraph and blah, blah, blah. like, well, is my book, is it suitable actually? Is that the right space for this book? No, it really fucking isn't, you know? <laughs> I know that. Trying to tell the man at the top is another story, right? But so what we need to do is understand where we want to be, have the, uh, have be connected to the right people to help us get there. But, but the extra piece of it, so in its essence, it's an agency, but it wants to be a little bit more than that because it wants to plug in the need for self-care, self-empowerment. It wants to give people tools to navigate a white space and industry. It wants to give people the connections they need for the things that they want to get done. So mentorship, training, um, funding in some respects, you know, and to do it all, to do it a more holistic kind of way rather than just being like, okay, I've signed you up. You go for the next five years, build your career. And when you start earning money, I'll take 20% of what comes into your inbox. Do you know what I mean? Which yeah. has majority of the time been my experience of how an agent treats you and your talent right they just wait for you to, to do to do the work and whatever and they try, <laughs> they try and cream off of it but so it's an antidote to all of that and it, it wants to be across it wants to give people across the world the, uh, a platform a voice it wants to build their um the businesses how they want to do it and or, or their their brand if they're writers or whatever they are and um you know, create equity in the food and beverage industry and also wealth creation. Just make sure people are earning the appropriate amount of money for the amount of work they're doing. Because for so many years, I have killed, like, literally killed myself working for other people's interests um, for nothing. You know, not getting anything out of it apart from what they would like to call exposure in entirely the wrong media, in entirely the wrong space. So... So that's what the, the big vision is for Black Book. It's a global representation platform for anybody working in f &B. I love that. That's <laughs> great. Um, and not to kind of pivot back to your book I, I, and to food more literally, um, but in the notes section of your book, you mention sourcing ingredients responsibly. And like that's not a thing that anyone says in a book that comes out in the United States. Like I don't, you can't, I feel like you're like, you're like, in a cookbook from the United States, no one talks about where the food comes from. Like that's not a thing that anyone talks about in the States. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there was kind of a moment maybe in the, maybe 10 years ago when that could have been a thing, but like it's very alienating to a US audience to ask them to care where their food comes from. <laughs> so, um, and, but I've noticed it's a, it's more of a thing in the UK. Like it, it like from the cookbooks I've read, which I have, I have like a million British cookbooks on my desk right now. I don't know why. I don't know how it happened. But um, why was it important for you to make that statement? And how does it affect your food choices in your day-to-day -day life and in your work as, as a cook? Yeah, I mean, there's one thing I will say about, look, I mean, inherently, I am a human who values the planet, right? So if we consider ourselves humans that value the planet, then we have to be thinking sustainably, 
around most things we do every day. And what I am aware of is that, and definitely something I don't want to do is like be preaching at people. You have to buy organic, you have to do this. And you're not a good human if you're not like spending 20 pounds on your <laughs> eggs, you know? So, and you know, because people can't necessarily, and this actually really winds me up is that people are priced out of sustainability and they're priced out of healthy choices because of, you know, idiotic marketing around it. And, you know, I, lo I love that you've got a new book coming out, haven't you? That I do, yes. <laughs> you know, I love the topic and I love the title because you're right. Anyway, let's go back to sustainability. <laughs> I try to practice sustainability as best I can every day. And that makes, sometimes it's macro choices, sometimes it's micro choices. When it comes to my you know, everyday cooking, like Sarah and I, I mean, she's keto. So her protein usually comes from a meat source or a fish source. But we only eat meat or fish maybe two or three times a week because, and that's because we want to be buying the right sustainably sourced um, meat or fish proteins. And that's a responsibility to the environment that we think is important. Um, so we don't eat loads of meat and fish, right? And if I put meat or fish on my menu when I'm cooking, it means the price will reflect the fact that it is sustainably sourced and organic and that and that is problematic for a lot of people because you know, people think they want to be woke to sustainability in the environment but then they don't necessarily want to pay the price of what that actually costs <laughs> when it comes to like a supper club or a restaurant or whatever so it's challenging um and I, you know i have something to say as well about how how we can work harder to bring the 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 cost down of like organic and free range and stuff like that because there's lots governments could do in terms of subsidies and legislation against existing farming practices and just make everybody fucking do the same thing the same right way and subsidize it and then we're all good <laughs> that's what i think um but i'm certainly not there to to preach at people about their spending choices around food you know in you know i grew up eating out of tin cans and I mean I'm not saying I was poor on the street I'm just saying <laughs> tin food wasn't uncommon in my house growing up frozen meals and ready meals you know so I'm not a snob around any of that stuff but I guess I, I, I certainly see the value in amazing fresh ingredients and um, I see the value in the flavor that you get from the better flavor that you get from good sustainably sourced ingredients full stop whether it's vegetables proteins legumes lentils grains where whatever the ingredient is it's always going to taste a little bit better if it's sustainably sourced sustainably farmed and all sustainably means really is with love right instead of for money <laughs> <laughs> instead of like that being the one driving capitalism being the sole driving force beside behind the, the production of food um so yeah, it's in there because I care about it, but also I don't want to labor the point too much because, and also because, you know, a lot of these ingredients are coming from the continent of Africa and there is an environmental impact there. So, you know, I choose to make these other choices around you know, not using single use plastics or using you know, cleaning things that's better for the environment than what I used to use. You have to like, you, nobody's perfect, you know, so you have to make compromises and Okay, if I want to eat really good quality meat, then I'm only going to eat it once a week. Uh, if I can't, if I want to be importing ingredients from Ghana, well, then I should be thinking a bit, I should be a bit more mindful about how many times I put the kettle on, how many times I flush the toilet in a day, how many times, um, uh, you know, whether, I, whether I'm using Ecova or some other environmentally friendly product, da -da -da, if I'm using cling film or not, which we don't anymore, or, you know. So you, I, I try to make the choices that I'm comfortable with because I know that me and my business are essentially adding carbon. Um, and yeah, even things like using the browser I use, Ecosia, every time I do a search on Ecosia, they, they plant a tree. So I, you know, my conscience is balanced in those ways. So I think it's up to everybody to find their own conscious balance uh, in a way that's affordable for them. But I am really, really annoyed and frustrated by the marketing around healthy food and veganism actually. And just, the barriers to entry that are put over, you know, people who don't have, you know, high disposable income right. um, and they're kind of marketed out of and priced out of healthy choices around food, which is, 
probably a campaign I might take up at some point later. <laughs> maybe not this year, but maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's why I'm, my book will be about these things, sort of about how, um, how all these choices that get pushed on us as individual are actually structural and, and the price of things that, you know, meat isn't cheaper than, than vegetables inherently. It's because of the subsidies. It's because of the, the, and I mean, yeah. So I'm, my book is about veganism, but it's more about like, um, how to diversify the way you eat in a way that, recognizes all these forces that are crushing your ability to make good choice you know like to make better choices for the for the world and and to show that yeah it's not it's not like a it's not a rich person's you know thing eating well and and eating sustainably is not just for rich people exactly and i have a door sorry sorry there's a door slamming continuously over here (laughs) um you know, and part of the reason, I mean, I don't know if I've really spoken on this or not, but you know, Zoe's Garner Kitchen as a business is pivoting now. I hate the word pivoting because we were doing it anyway, but, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to change the brand a little bit to make it more focused around accessibility. Because there's a couple of things, actually. For one, there is a lot of people who don't want to do the work of just Googling where to find an ingredient, right? But then there's an, the problem of, okay, well, I'm interested in that ingredient, but I don't want to pay 25 pounds for a kilo of it from that posh health food store, because what if I don't like it? Yeah. Um, so Zoe's Garner Kitchen now is, is basically tra- transforming into an online, uh, an, e- an e-shop basically for mm-hmm. interesting, healthy, um, African, not just West African ingredients, whether it's your moringas and your baobabs or grains of paradise and the beautiful thing about this food is every single thing has an amazing health property behind it and not just one probably like four or five six or seven right um and so what i get to do now is bring african food to the masses but do it through an e-shop that's also going to give people access to healthy ingredients in small quantities in affordable quantities with guidance on how to use them or apply them um, and so, yeah, that's where we're going. It's like, basically, your health is your wealth and you can achieve this. You don't have to only shop at Holland and Barrett. You don't have to go to Whole Foods. Here's, here's some nice choices you can make that happen to be exciting flavors in your kitchen, but also have these amazing properties behind them as well. Um, so that's where the business is going long term um, and more away from catering and definitely away from street food. I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, is there Whole Foods in the UK? Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't know that they made. I didn't. I don't know where Whole Foods is any, that anymore. I thought it was just a U.S. thing, but no, I guess no. not. Sure. But you know, <laughs> like the people. And but here's the thing: it's like shopping at Whole Foods. Like you, you can even tell the people who shop at Whole Foods. It's, it's. Um, I don't know. It's like there's some cachet around it. You know. Yeah. It, it, there shouldn't be cachet around, around buying food. healthy food. It should just be everybody has access to this food. It's like. And, you know, why is the, you know, like the whole caged hen thing. It's like, why are we still doing caged hens? Like, why? Why, why, why? I went to ask the people in agriculture at a ministerial level. It's like, why haven't you not just banned caged hens? We know it makes bad products. We know it's bad for the hens. Um, It's probably not that great for the environment somewhere along the line. So why are we doing it? You know, everybody... Just give everybody nice, good quality, organic free range eggs, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a big bugbear of mine, the whole, how, how health is marketed, mainly to white people, mainly to middle class white people, and it assumes that nobody else is interested, and it prices out anybody else who might be, and yeah, I'm over that as well. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I love talking to Bryant Terry, because he is so vocal about being like, People think veganism is a white thing, but I grew up in, he, like, he grew up in Tennessee where also people think veganism doesn't exist. So it's like, but, you know, and, and it was black folks who were the people who taught me about plant-based eating and, you know, and that lineage is so important. And I think it, it I mean, it gets erased because it serves a purpose, of course. So, um, 
there's also this, there was, sorry, or the, maybe there still is this, and part of the reason, you know, there's so many reasons why I wanted to start. When I, when I figured out the reasons why Zoe's Garner Kitchen existed, there were so many <laughs> reasons why it needed to exist. And part of it was this, you know, I grew up in the 80s watching this narrative come out of Africa. There was poverty, it was famine, it was destroying itself, imploding, dictators, da 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 That was the media transcription of what was going on in Africa for me. And then, you know, compare and contrast with my delicious kenke and my tilapia and my shita. And I'm like, what is going on? There must be like some other stuff happening here. Um, and so, you know, it's all about the gays and how they want to position it and how they want to keep the power, right? But absolutely. And the other part is people thinking that African food is bushmeat and it's all like fatty, greasy. Um, you know, people look were looking down their nose at that cuisine. And it's like, you know, my menu, before veganism became fashionable, before plant-based became fashionable, that's what my menu was. I didn't even realize it was gluten-free, it was dairy-free, it was, you know, I had probably 80% of the menu was vegan and plant-based. And you would have a meat dish, you would have a fish dish, and maybe you'd have one more. I had my fried chicken, you always got to keep fried chicken in the menu. But the majority of it was plant-based. And like, yeah, I'm kind of missed a trick by not capitalizing on that sooner <laughs> you know, back in 20 because I certainly would have made some bang for my buck then but you know it wasn't in my marketing concerns because it just inherently this was it you know yeah um so yeah fixing those stereotypes or addressing them anyway is super important and yeah we live off of plant-based diets because meat actually is a luxury in some part of the world you know <laughs> yeah no I, pe people don't understand that but um and so during the pandemic, not to use the word pivoted again, but you, you were provide, I don't, are you still doing this? You're providing meals to NHS workers? Uh, um, Zoe's Gone Kitchen? Well, we see it. I set up a community kitchen via a public donation through crowdfunder. And that was to specifically uh, help vulnerable people in the community around me in East London. Um, so I've been working with like Hackney Migrant Centre, Aquaba UK, which is a West African at-risk migrant centre, a group called... I mean, lots of little organizations, basically, whether they were elderly people or people in sheltered accommodation or homeless or had health underlying health conditions. I worked with all these little small people, small groups to get food to those people. And then on top of that, we were also providing meals for NHS key workers and staff and also care homes. So, yeah, we were doing about 500 meals a week in the end, which is kind of incredible because I only set it up to do 150 meals wow. a week. Um, <laughs> But we have literally just, well, we're not doing NHS meals anymore as of this week. Um, and the crowdfunder, to be honest, has kind of lost, you know, lost its momentum and stuff like that. But I've also decided that, look, I, you know, my purpose, I, I can live my purpose by running a community kitchen or I can live my purpose by doing the bigger work. And so majoritively, I'm going to use my time. I decided not to extend it very much. So what I am going to do is I'm going to continue to provide meals for the at-risk migrants because they are my community. Um, and the numbers are small enough for me to be able to pay it out of my own pocket. Um, so we're going to carry that on. But like the big 500 meals a week stuff, that's, this is the first week where I'm not doing that actually. And it's really nice in a way. <laughs> I hate to say it. But, um, you know, it, it's been a very rewarding thing to do. I've grown tremendously from it. Um, yeah, I stepped into my myself a lot more during the process of doing that. You know, I had to make myself super vulnerable by asking people for help. And that really isn't me, <laughs> you know. It's just not what I've done historically. I'm a strong black woman. <laughs> um, so, you know, I learned so much. and I met some amazing people on the way. And obviously we've done good work, like feeding people. So it's been hugely rewarding. But, yeah, that's scaling right back now so that I can focus on black book, focus on writing, focus on the spice business. And... You know, there's a whole, there's so much more going to happen. <laughs> you know? Amazing. Uh, so for you, is cooking a political act? Uh, yeah. Yes, it always has been for me. Um, and, you know, you can define your politics in another way. I mean, is cooking at home political for me? Mm, also probably because of the choices I make when I make my purchases around food, right? They're politically informed. They're like with the consciousness, um, around food politics, around sustainability, around those things. But I, mean, I don't always want to talk about politics while I'm eating, for sure. But, <laughs> you know, politics doesn't inform my choices around food. But me cooking, uh, me representing Ghanaian 
flavors or West Africa or Africa in any context when it comes to food and whether that's me on a panel, whether that's me giving a demo, whether that's me hosting a supper club or a residency, whatever the, the space is, that is political because I'm challenging people to interact with a culture that's perhaps um, for some people unfamiliar to them or I'm challenging people to interact with the culture uh, in a new way that's familiar to them um, and that's going to challenge all their concepts of, of what is traditional, who's allowed to cook what, cultural appropriation, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's, there's so many things that come out of, whenever you're cooking, if you're from a place that's considered other, and if you yourself are a representation or have been made to be a representation of other, then everything you do is political in the end because you are you're a living, breathing, walking. Um, <laughs> I, I was really, I nearly went so dramatic and said bill of rights, but that's too much. Um, but you know what I mean? You're, you're basically like a, a manifesto in flow, right? So every, every exchange you have around food, every meal you cook, you're prepared for the conversation that's either a, a, an interrogation of the thing or an introduction to the thing or an education of the thing there's always some political moment around the food, even when it's a positive, bringing people together over food. There's politics in that as well, because, well, why did we need the food to bring those people together? Because there was some political thing keeping them apart, you know? So I think inherently when you are what other people call other, politics is like part of my fabric. Absolutely. That was a very long answer, sorry. No, I love it. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, well, absolute pleasure. You know, I love to talk, babe. And I'm really grateful <laughs> to <laughs> Thank you. I would like to just, if there was a job where I could just be on back-to-back -back podcasts doing this. <laughs> I mean, it, there are so many podcasts. I feel like I've, I've, now I have to say no to people lately. I'm like, I can't. Yeah. I can't, I, cause for me, I'm like, I don't actually enjoy talking that much. Like I like writing. So I'm like, doing this is just like, um it's stressful because <laughs> <laughs> we do need i mean i know there's a lot out there but we need to have a lot out there so that people yeah. can hear you know no. it has to be easy to find so thank you thank you